The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Jordan from Ecuador and attended the Florida Institute of Technology for his undergraduate. He moved on to Stanford uh, for MS in 2003 and then a PhD a few years later. Uh, he went to Northwestern, was an assistant professor. Uh, he's now an associate professor at Caltech and uh, a little bit better climate. Uh, he, he leads a computational uh, mechanics group here in the Department of Civil Mechanical Engineering, and he's led uh, research programs for several agencies, uh, including Air Force, Department of Energy, and the NSF. Among the awards, he received the Zienkiewicz Medal, which is given uh, by Civil Engineers of London Institution for uh, best paper uh, 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 for research on numerical methods under the age of 25, uh, 35. Uh, he also recently received a career award from NSF. Uh, in addition to research, he's involved in educational outreach. Uh, he established Bridges to PhD uh, program within universities of Puerto Rico and his native Ecuador. Mm -hmm. uh, this program provides assistance to mentoring undergraduate, uh, undergraduate students wishing to pursue graduate research studies. His courses also receive uh, consistently high marks. Uh, by students, and I've known Jose for several years now. Outside of classroom, he's also a gracious host <laughs> and a fantastic cook. And if I could recommend anything, it would be a signature paella dish. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, seafood paella. If Kiss would uh, sponsor that, we could make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> we could sponsor many things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, please uh, welcome Jose. He's going to talk well. a little bit about the background on, uh, in, from the engineering perspective rather than geological. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so what we do in our lab is uh, a combination of soil mechanics and mechanics. And I was asked to present an introduction to soil mechanics. And I, you know, just like being asked for a soil on, that represents Mars or Earth, I didn't know quite exactly what to do. So, so I decided to go about this approach. You know, I'm going to really introduce you to soil mechanics. Uh, hopefully, it won't be too painful. Uh, but uh, but I, I really want to cover the what, the why, and the how of sort of uh, what people do in soil mechanics and what are some of the tools. I won't get into the sort of the, the, the avant-garde uh, topics because we will cover uh, some of those later uh, during the workshop. So here I just want to establish some of the vocabulary and, and get us off the ground. So what is soil mechanics? Uh, so soil mechanics was originally called Herbaumechanique, uh, and its father has been usually named as uh, Carl Tersaghi. He's been identified as a, as a father of soil mechanics. And really, soil mechanics is, in principle or in paper, the applications of laws of mechanics, uh, or physics, you could say, uh, to soils uh, as engineering materials. Now, this is a bit of a stretch. Uh, it's, you will see that modern soil mechanics um, is, is not really 100% the applications of the laws of mechanics or physics. You know, it's, it's sort of, uh, in practice, is, it, it has become uh, something that is more guided by experience and emp empirical methods, or let's say semi-empirical methods. But at least when it was born, this was the, the idea. And now modern day soil mechanics is sort of starting to look more like this. Uh, but but uh, just a word of caution. So soil mechanics uh, focuses on mostly uh, two kinds of materials that I will describe in more detail later, what we call coarsely grained materials and finely grained materials. Uh, coarsely grained uh, soils are sands and gravels. Okay, this, this, I guess, would represent a lot of the soils that we're interested in for this workshop. 
Uh, but these are very interesting as well, but I will focus less on clays and silts. I'll, I'll focus more on coarsely grained materials, and you'll see that their mechanical behavior is governed by completely different uh, mechanisms. Uh, why are we interested in, in, in this stuff? Uh, well, sandcastles, very important. Uh, every kid uh, wants to know how to build one. Uh, but more seriously, I mean, the strength of, this, of sand is at the core of being able to build something like this uh, and understanding the physics of what happens between the, the intergranular locking and even the, the water trapped in between the pores is really what allows you to build sandcastles. So we're very interested in what makes these this, this structures hold up, the strength characteristics. From a more engineering perspective, uh, people have been very interested in things like subsidence. This is what's called uniform uh, settlement. This is Palacio Bellas Artes in uh, Mexico, uh, District uh, uh, DF. And there's been 15 feet of settlement in this building uh, throughout history. You can barely see it, but it's there. Fortunately, it's been very uniform, so nothing is really cracking. But if you go to the sites, there's an entire floor that has been, now it's underground. You know, it used to be first floor, now it's, I guess, basement. Uh, so 15 feet of subsidence uh, since construction early uh, 20th century. Uh, another classic picture, uh, right, the, the, the Tower of Pisa. Unfortunately for the tower, not so much of a uniform settlement, more of a non-uniform or differential settlement. Again, it happens a lot on clays. The Tower of Pisa happens to be sitting at, the, at, at a very famous foundation or, or formation called the, the, the Pisa clay, and everybody knows it's been tilted. It's a good thing it's been tilted because Galileo used that feature so that he could drop objects from the top down. So if, if it hadn't settled non-uniformly, you know, we wouldn't have those, those experiments. Um, Teton Dam, another huge example of geomechanics or soil mechanics, maybe not as, at its best. Uh, this was a, a breach of a dam. Again, this, I, want, I like this, this slide because it, it reminds us of the interaction between soils and water. Uh, there was a, a phenomenon of piping here uh, going on at the dam. That is water seeping slowly through one of the faces, penetrating the clay core of a dam. So most of these dams have a clay core inside because it's fairly impermeable. There was some seepage, uh, some, some uh, piping going on. This is 1976. An entire dam collapsed in 30 seconds. Okay. So very important interaction between water and, and, and soils. Same here, Niigata earthquake, 1964. That's, uh, that was a big earthquake. Well, not so big compared to the last one. This was a 6.4 magnitude. Still strong enough to topple buildings. Nothing wrong with that building there, structurally speaking. That what happened was the soil underneath collapsed due to soil liquefaction. That's an instability. And again, is the interaction, I lost my mic. Is the interaction between um, uh, the soil and the water that was key. Okay? But, uh, but today, we won't, we won't be looking too much at that interaction. Levy failures, Katrina, same thing, interaction between soils, uh, water. This is 2005, right? Costliest hurricane history in, in the history of, of the U.S. because of the levee failures, okay? And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but putting a, a picture of, uh, of one of our rovers up here, and I think this, this really raises a, a huge opportunity now for soil mechanics to really understand what's going on here this interaction between, uh, you know, mechanical systems and, and, and uh, in this case, Martian regolith. And here is a, a picture of a typical modeling tool that we now have available in soil mechanics. I will be describing some of this tool. This is a finite element mesh of, of a soil 
interacting with the wheel, and you can see that there's a very close interaction. There's significant what, of what we call plasticity, non-elastic deformations here, and, and this is what soil mechanics is all about, building some of these models that can tell you what the deformations are due to loading. So I'll get into, into some of that. Uh, so how? how? How do we do some of these things? What are some of the tools that we have available? So I figured I'd show you the typical topics that I cover in my classic soil mechanics course. Uh, okay, this is a, a, an engineering course, and this are, these are some of the classical topics that we talk about during the course. Of course, we won't cover all of them. I, I'll just say a few words about those that are highlighted in, 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 uh, in orange. Okay. Uh, so there is a very uh, close connection between index and gradation and soil classification, so what kind of soil you have and its strength or mechanical properties. Okay, so I figured that I would talk about these areas first and then try to connect, uh, connect them to the strength, to the mechanical properties. Right? How does the microstructure or the gradation of the material eventually affect your, your mechanical properties, the ones that you care about, you know, whether you can put the stuff on top of a soil or not, whether you can drive your rover on top of it or not. So that's, that's going to be the, the name of the game. Uh, but really, we, we'll get deeper in, into that uh, as the workshop uh, starts. Today, I just want to uh, lay the, the, the foundation, I guess, for, for common vocabulary. So the first thing is uh, index and gradation. Uh, and we start with, uh, with the definition. <coughs> so uh, a soil mass is a collection of particles, okay, this is a very basic definition, and voids in between, okay. And those voids can be filled with fluids or air. So this is a typical cartoon of what I'm going to be calling a soil. So when I talk about, when I think of a soil, I think of this. But in this uh, short course and for most of this workshop, I'm going to think of a soil filled with just air, no water, okay, just to make things very simple. So that's what we call a drained condition. So you just have your solid particles interacting with each other, and there's air in between. But we could have water, nothing precluding us from that. And it doesn't have to be water. It could be any fluid you want. Okay, so each phase has a volume and it has a mass. And this is really important. The macroscopic mechanical behavior of this mass of soil is absolutely governed by the phase interaction, by the, by the interaction of the phases, okay? So how they interact with each other. For example, how does the solid phase squeezes the water phase and water wants to escape those areas that are squeezed, controls a lot of the overall strength of the material, okay? Uh, so if we could only understand how these phases interact with each other at this scale, we could understand everything. But of course, we just can't understand that, that scale at, at this point. But, but we will see on Wednesday that we're, we're, headed, we're, we're sort of headed that way. Um, okay, so what soil mechanics has tried to do, because it cannot represent this uh, explicitly, it's tried to build some uh, ways of abstracting the information. Okay, not seeing, at, not looking at each phase per se, but building what we call ratios and index uh, properties, okay, that tell us roughly what the composition of a soil is. So some of the key uh, volumetric ratios that I'm going to be talking about and that we would talk about in this workshop is, is uh, for example, void ratio. That, that's just the ratio between the, the voids, right, the empty stuff and the solid stuff, okay? And, and in sands, we have some typical bounds. We talked this morning about bounds. On Earth, we, we have pretty good bounds for void ratios for, for earthen materials. Porosity, another big uh, uh, volumetric ratio, okay, nothing but the ratio between the, the, the voids, again, and the total uh, volume of, of a soil mass. 
And another ratio that's typically used in soil mechanics is saturation, but we won't use it too much. That's how much of your empty space is filled with water, right, volume-wise. Volume a very important mass ratio, water content, right? Uh, so how much of the mass of, your, of, your, of, of water compares to the mass of solid in your soil mixture? For most soils uh, on, on Earth, this is less than one, but there are some soils where this is way above five, say, for example, marine uh, formations and organics, okay? And the link between volumetric ratios, of course, and mass ratios is always going to be density. And we have a bunch of densities, moist density, solid density, water, dry density, et cetera. Okay, so these ratios are used in practice to really characterize soils and properties because, again, we cannot really look at that scale in detail. So let's, let's start uh, differentiating uh, some of our soils so we can uh, move on and, 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 and look at the ones that we're more, mostly interested in. So, so the main uh, characterization or classification tool that we have available to us is, is using grain size as the main classification feature. Okay? So we use, we use the, the size of the of particles to really draw the line. And, and here is the line. Everything is either above or below 0.05 millimeters. Everything that's above 0.05 millimeters is what we call coarse grain, and that's called a sand or a gravel. And within that, you can characterize furthermore, but really this is the boundary. And then anything less than that is a finely grained material. That's a clay and a silt. Basically, you cannot see it with your naked eye, right? You cannot see the grains. This is like five micrometers, if I'm not mistaken, right? Whereas this, a bar here would be several millimeters, right? So you can see the grains with your eye. And here, the mechanics are governed by the texture, right? The angularity of the particles, the friction angles, and so on. At the particle level, texture governs everything. Here, mechanics are governed by water, right? The interaction of water in between the clay particles, right? So we are not going to focus on these guys. We're really going to live here, okay, on, on, on coarsely grained materials. But be aware that, that you know, this is a, a whole area in, in soil mechanics, and, and there are people studying those materials quite, quite a bit. Okay, and, and soils are currently classified in the U.S. using this uh, U.S. classification system that Casagrande developed uh, last, last century. Okay, so, so if, you're, if you want to see how soils are classified, you can, you can just go to that classification system and take a look. Okay, so let's take a look at uh, coarsely grained soils and what makes them tick. Okay, that's, I'm going to get more and more into that, into the modeling of, of these coarsely uh, grained soils and, and what really governs their behavior. So the first, uh, the first property that is really key in these materials is this uh, ratio that we defined before as the void ratio. Remember, it was the ratio between the volume of a void to the volume of a solids, and we define things that are loosely packed or densely packed. Okay, a densely packed material has a low E, and here's a cartoon of how they look, densely packed, loosely packed. Okay, those are very nice pictorial ways of, of, of re re remembering what is dense and what is loose. However, I must warn you that this is a relative statement, right? What is really dense and what is really loose, you know? It, it, it is very rel relative. However, there is something that we like to use a lot, and there is this idea of relative density that allows us to normalize things a little bit. And we talk about the maximum, greatest possible, or loosest configuration that a material can have, and the minimum or lowest possible or densest packing that a material can have, and then use those to define the relative density, the current relative density of the, of the material. And this little guy, ID, the relative density, strongly affects engineering behavior of these materials. Okay? So how relatively packed you are 
will really determine whether your material does one thing versus another. For example, we will get more into this, relatively loose materials when you shear them, they like to compact. You can see it from this, from this configuration. If you decide that the top is going to move relative to the bottom horizontally, right, the next configuration is going to look, you know, lower than it does right now. Whereas for the dense configurations like your knuckles, right, if you try to shear your knuckles, they're going to have to move up before they can move horizontally, right? So loose materials want to compact, whereas dense have to dilate in order to shear. And that has a huge impact in the mechanical behavior. So relative density will have to be accounted for in, in, in materials, in mechanical uh, models uh, that want to, to, to look at the material behavior. All right. <clears throat> so I'm actually doing pretty well here in, in terms of time. Um, so what are some of the, <laughs> I don't know what that uh, XB is doing up there. Uh, what are some of the typical problems in soil mechanics, okay? So, so if, if I had to boil it down to, you know, if someone came to me and said, you know, what can soil mechanics do for me? You know, what are some of the tools that you have available? that I could use, right, for, for my kind of application. Um, I would say that soil mechanics in a nutshell, at least my favorite part of soil mechanics, is the, is the, is the study of placing a, a, a structure, whatever you want it to be, this could be a rover, this could be a, a tower, it could be whatever, basically this will impose some loads at the surface. Okay, so you, anything you do, whether it's a, a mechanical system or a static system, a, a civil structure, or, or a rocket, it doesn't matter. It will put a load on this, on this uh, layered material. And what soil mechanics is all about is one, allowing you to figure out what the distribution of stresses is due to that application of that surface load. So what are my stresses, say, down here in the piece of clay formation? Is it one megapascal, 10 megapascal, whatever. What, how, how, what is it, right? So distribution of stress fields. And after I know the distribution of those stress fields, is that stress allowable? Can the formation take those stresses, right? Is my piece of clay, as in the case of, as in the case of a PISA tower, is my clay going to settle? Is it going to consolidate due to those uh, loadings? And in this case, the, the answer was, was yes. Um, so that, those are the kind of answers that you can get with soil mechanics. Is my sand field right here closer to the application of the load? Is it going to fail due to bearing capacity, right? Is, is my is my foundation going to slide because the sand is not strong enough to, to hold it, right? This could be your rover crawling on, on the surface. Is that soil underneath strong enough to hold it? So we need to really determine the strength of your formation. In this case, the strength of the sand is, is key. Uh, there are many other things that you can do. For example, calculate how quickly you're going to consolidate, but we will not focus on clays, remember? We'll, let's focus on the sand. So you, we will have to determine the strength of a sand. We will have to calculate the allowability of these loads on top of the sand. So is, is it going to fail? And here the question is, what do you mean by failure? Is it two centimeter displacement? Is it the tower collapsing? What is failure to you? And, and that is uh, application dependent, right? It, it depends on what, what do you mean by failure. But, but in, in, in theory, if you have uh, a way of quantifying failure, you could answer this question. How, how close are you to failure? And in order to start to answer these questions, you need to know two things. One, again, the stress distribution. And 
some mechanicians, the, the, the classical ones at least, have done it with, with analytical tools of elasticity, but now we have finite elements, for example. So finite elements can get us the distribution of stresses. And then the million dollar question here that we're going to focus a lot on Wednesday is the material behavior. Okay? Really knowing the stress distribution means nothing if you don't really know what the material is doing. Okay? And for that, you need, you need mathematical models. You need, you need models that can tell you, okay, if I put so much uh, load on your soil, how much is it going to deform? Terrific. Um, so let's take, a, let's take a walk along uh, what I would call the current modeling tools in soil mechanics. So, and, and we're going to get a little more abstract, but, uh, but I really want to get uh, into, the, into some of, the, some of the, the details here. So what the current theoretical tools are doing is, is, is putting together a bunch of, of, of uh, frameworks that we have available. And I won't get into uh, any of these frameworks in detail, but I want to put them out there so that you're aware that, that they exist and that they're, they're there for us to, to, to use them if we need them, let's say. So the first thing we, we can do is, is, is use continuum mechanics. This is the, the, the area of mechanics that allow us to describe how, how bodies deform or how they interact. For example, in soils, again, the interaction between the solid phase and the fluid phase, or this could be air or water, it doesn't matter. The interaction between them and how they deform together is something that continuum mechanics can allow us to, to explore into. So many of you are familiar with the bottom equation here. It's called the balance of momentum. This is really a statement of equilibrium, right? Things must be in equilibrium within every object. But if you have, say, an interstitial fluid, let's say water, uh, in between the pores, you also need to satisfy that that water is not being created or destroyed, right? You, you want to conserve mass, right? So these are what we will call our governing equations, right? So, so you impose that every formation or every problem satisfy some governing equations, right? Some basic physics that we know are true. And I have highlighted here two, uh, two uh, entities. This is the stress. So this is saying that the stresses must be in a state of equilibrium. And this is the velocity of the fluids, let's say. And what complicates things in these materials is that these two are coupled, right? The state of stress really affects how much velocity your fluids have. And your fluids also affect your stresses, okay? But let's say that you have a dry system. You still have to satisfy balance of linear momentum. Things need to be in equilibrium. Then things get more complicated because the stress is related to the strain via some what we call constitutive equation. This is a classical example of a constitutive equation. Think of your elasticity equation, right? Uh, uh, Hooke's uh, law type, right? Uh, to the deformation, so the force, right? So, so this says that for a change in the strain in any object, you need to have a change in the stress. And how much of that happens is governed by what we call a mechanical stiffness that controls the deformation. And this is the Achilles heel of, this, of these models, right? Because nobody really knows what this guy's CEP really looks like, right? So somebody gets into a laboratory and does 10 experiments Right, and comes back with, a, with some sort of a curve and says, oh, it seems like they're linearly related. Right? And that's it. And they give it to the engineer, and we're done. And, uh, and you know, we go home, have a margarita or, or something. And, 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 and this is really where the, sort of the, the, uh, the cutting edge of, of the field is, is really trying to do this in a, in a better way. And, and we'll get to that uh, more on Wednesday. But this is the current form. 
available to us. Then we put it in a computer into what we call computational inelasticity. We won't get into that. Uh, and it, at the end of the day, we want to construct some finite element model, like that mesh that I showed you before with the wheel interacting with the soil. So we need finite elements, remember, to integrate your governing equations that you got in the continuum mechanics framework, taking into account the material behavior. Okay. So just recap. Your continuum mechanics gives you your laws of physics. right? They tell you how objects need to behave. Constitutive theory tells you how the material wants to deform. And this will, in turn, affect the, con the continuum mechanics, of course. And then at the end of the day, you need to integrate this somehow. And most, most of the time, you don't have an analytical solution. You will have to solve those equations that we, we, that we found in continuum mechanics using some numerical scheme. So finite elements is the method of choice. It used to be finite differences, let's say, 40 years ago, right? Um, and now there are new methods, like discrete element methods. But, but we, we will get into those. Uh, on Wednesday. All right, so what is this finite element method just from the, you know, a very uh, superficial uh, view? Again, it's designed to approximate these this differential equations that we saw that govern the physics of bodies. Uh, these PDEs are a model to the physical phenomena. They're not the physical phenomena, okay? They're, they're, so you have here an approximation to a model, all right? Uh, and how good your approximation is will depend on how good your model is of a physical phenomenon, of course. And then you have different types of PDEs. Uh, the, the ones that we're mostly interested in are going to be here. Elliptic, things are happening very slowly, elastostatics. Or hyperbolic, wave equation, things are happening dynamically. Uh, just very quickly, here's a recipe to, to do FEM. You need what's called a strong form, the mathematical equations. And eventually, you get into a matrix form. And this is what engineers love to solve. Uh, this is what the strong form looks like. Again, for a typical mechanical problem, you have an object here, your potato. You have your PDE here, your governing equation, equilibrium. You have to have some boundary conditions. And here is, again, you need a constitutive relationship that gets you from sigma, or that gets you a sigma, given a displacement or a deformation. These equations here allow you to solve for a displacement field. However, sigma here, the stress, is an inconvenient quantity that appears in your equations. So somehow you need to go from a displacement field to a stress field. And the only way to do that is with a constitutive relation. And that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with the physics or with finite elements. The problem is how do you relate the displacements to the stresses? And that's why we're here. Because that's, this, is a pro, this is a part where we get stuck, right? Is it a linear relation? Is it a nonlinear? If so, how does it look like? Is it constant? Is it changing? What is it? OK, so here are the modeling ingredients. You set a geometry for any problem you have. You discretize that geometry, usually uh, using finite elements in this case. You set material parameters. We run into another problem. We heard in the last couple of talks that we don't know too much about these material parameters. Okay, which is something that our models need. So what, are, what is my porosity here relative to there? Uh, what is my void ratio here relative to there? Water content, et cetera. You set your boundary conditions, right? What kind of stresses do you have? Any kind of support? Then you run it and you solve. Okay. So from a modeling point of view, we're in pretty good shape. We just need constitutive models and parameters. Well, and I would say boundary conditions are pretty tough to get most of the time, too. OK, 
This is the skeleton of a finite element program. I won't go into the details, but I do want to show you that here at the heart of this, it's something called a, called a material subroutine. Okay, it's like call Superman. <laughs> okay, here it says, go tell the material subroutine that we have found a displacement that satisfies our equations, but we need a stress now. Okay, and here is where we run into trouble, right? What is that stress that is appropriate for those displacements for the material that we're dealing with? So here's where we need a constitutive model and, and things get, get uh, dicey. All right, um, so what controls material behavior or shear strength? What, what, is, what, what makes this granular material stick? You know, we've said a lot about this constitutive modeling. So how do people construct constitutive models? What are some of the variables that are important to constitutive modeling? So as we said earlier, these coarse grain materials depend a lot on void ratio, or you can see it as relative density. How closely are you packed matters a lot, okay? Uh, particle shape and size, extremely important. I won't touch too much into that because I think on Wednesday we're going to talk more about that. Grain size distribution, very important. How graded your material is matters. Particle surface, roughness matters. How much water you have. Intermediate principle stresses, you know, what, how much confinement do you have on this thing? You know, are you close to the surface? Are you deep into the? Uh, are you deep in the surface? And over consolidation, you know, the history, the pre-stress of a material. Um, I will touch a little bit on those uh, highlighted. The point is that engineers like myself and, and 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 experimentalists a lot have developed these models that account for most of these variables. These are called constitutive models, and the framework of choice here that you will see is elastoplasticity. So elastoplastic behavior, so behavior of materials that goes from the elastic regime, things that recover deformation, to things that are irrecoverable, right? You suffer a deformation and you never recover. It's like gaining weight, right? You, you never recover those, those pounds again. It doesn't matter <laughs> how hard you try. That's, that's a plastic deformation, my friends. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> um, many of us believe it's elastic, but it's, it's really plastic. Uh, So before we get into the constitutive models, I want to show you the, say, the Rolls-Royce of, of the characterization methods that I think Amy will talk more about this on Wednesday. Uh, but, the, but the idea is that people get into a lab and somehow they characterize the material or the behavior of a material. And there are two types of, of, of experiments that people like to do. Uh, and these are not in situ uh, testing. These are laboratory uh, devices, right? So someone takes a sample to the lab and then they, they test it. There's a direct shear, which is very nice because it's cheap, it's simple, it's fast, and it's very good for sand, so that's good news. And what you can get out of this guy is usually, let's say, apparent cohesion and friction angle. It's very good for that, okay? It tells you the limit of your sand pretty quickly. How much load can it take? You know, how much is my friction angle? You can get it very, very quickly. The cons is that you cannot look at fluids in between the, the, the grains. It, ha it has to be 100% uh, drained. Uh, it's, it's a force failure. There's a failure plane that forms here horizontally. So your, force, your, your, your plane of failure is forced by the apparatus rather than the material. And we will see that failure planes happen whatever they want to happen, not where you want them to happen. Here in this, in this device, you make it happen 
horizontally, and that's a problem. And people have done a lot of analysis, and things are pretty non-homogeneous inside the sample. So you don't really get an elemental response. You get a, this is really a boundary value problem. So the direct shear is still used in practice, but it's not as favored anymore. The really, the, the blue-eyed boy is, is now the triaxial cell. Right? It, it's really what people like because it's, it's, although one of its cons down here is that it's complex, it's really not that complex. Maybe, maybe it's complex for a soil mechanician, but, but it's, it's not really that complex. Uh, it, the pros, on the other hand, is that you can control drainage, so you can put fluids in this thing. You can allow them to escape if you want to. If you don't, you shut the valves. Uh, you can control the stress path here, which is very nice. You can do all kinds of different uh, stress paths. Not, not infinite, right? You cannot sample the entire stress field, but you can do many stress paths. Uh, you, you do control the direction of the principal directions. Uh, the principal stress directions are, are controlled, and, and things are a lot more homogeneous. And again, you get the same properties that you could get with your good old direct shear you can, and, and more. Uh, so, so this allows you to look at the deformation of the material, the failure of the material. Failure planes happen whatever they want to happen, and so on. So it's, 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 it's very nice uh, uh, experimental uh, setup. So this is what people have used mostly to construct some of the models that I'm going to show you in the next uh, 10 slides or so. And these are some of the features that are observed when you do these experiments and you try to model this material. So these are some of the observations that are, that are captured from these experiments. By the way, this is experimental data. It's not, it's not a model. Uh, so deformations in these materials, in these granular materials, in particular sands, are, one, nonlinear. Okay, you can see that to go from A to B, say as you increase pressure from the pressure at A to the pressure at B, you undergo a nonlinear path, right? So that's the first part of the statement, nonlinearity. And second of all, things are non-recoverable. Even if you went back to the previous pressure, let's say at C, you still have this difference in volume from A to C. That's an irrecoverable deformation. Okay. So any material model that, is, that dares to want to model this kind of material, must have to take into account nonlinearity and irrecoverable deformations. Okay. These materials are pressure dependent. This is, again, experimental data. This is pressure, confinement pressure in that uh, triaxial cell that I showed you versus how much shear you can put in that material. The more you pressure, let's say, as you go from 150 to 300, right, your material is able to take higher and higher shear uh, stresses. So any constitutive uh, model will have to take into account the pressure dependence of these materials. You cannot just ignore it. Another big difference in, in granular materials, let's say with respect to metals, is that there is a significant difference between tensile and compressive strength. Okay, and all of us know that, I mean, from playing at the beach, right? You can stand on sand, but it's very difficult to, to pull on sand, right? Uh, and well, the, 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 the difference is, is, is pretty clear also in experimental, uh, uh, in experiments, you can see that here the positive axis is, is tensile, the, the negative axis is compressive. You can put a whole, a, a whole lot more of compression than, say, tension in these materials, even under confinement. So again, models need to account for that big difference. Here is relative, de relative density again. This is a typical set of curves from dense and loose sands. Same sand, 
same uh, confinement, everything same, right? Exactly same material. We just packed one more densely than the other. All right. Here is what matters to the engineers. This is a stress-strain curve, right? Dense sands can carry a whole lot more of loads, right, than loose sands. And loose sands are a lot more ductile than dense sands. Right? And what happens is that the behavior here is controlled a lot by what we call the dilatancy. See how much difference the, the how much different the dilated behavior is. Loose uh, loose sands tend to contract all the time until they get to what we call uh, the the um, critical state where there is no more volumetric deformations. Dense sands tend to dilate and then they get to critical state. And this dilatancy is what controls or what provides the material this extra strength. So being able to capture this dilatancy is key. And if you go back to what controls dilatancy, well, relative density and also angularity of your particles, right? The more angular your particles are, the more dilatancy they're going to be able to build, right? Uh, spherical particles do not build as much dilatancy as, say, angular particles do. So morphology, the shape of your particles, will be very important. And finally, this is sort of a, a, a theoretical um, uh, consideration, so, so I will just uh, skip it for, for most of it. But I, I just want to point out that in these materials, in these frameworks, what you do is you, you construct what are called yield functions. This blue rays here are lines that basically tell your material where the boundary is between the elastic uh, behavior and the non-elastic behavior. There's, there's some sort of a boundary. That's called a yield function. We'll, we'll study a yield function in a, in a second. Again, for metals, a lot of the, of the know-how that we know here is, is borrowed from metals. For metals, the boundary gave you also the direction of, the, of what's called the plastic flow or the, the, or the direction of the plastic deformations. The normal to the boundary was the direction of a plastic flow. In non-metallic in non materials, like granular materials, that doesn't hold true. Your boundary of the elastic region doesn't tell you anything about the direction of plastic flow. So you have to come up with another uh, surface that's called a plastic potential that does tell you what the direction of the, of, the, uh, of the plastic deformations are. And by the way, these, again, are experimental results. This is, none of this is modeling. It's all experimental data. So your models need to take that into account. This is my only slide with, with equations. So just, just bear with me, because I think this will set the tone uh, <laughs> For, uh, for, for, for what's coming on, on, on some of the discussions that are coming on Wednesday. So this is what I call uh, elastoplasticity, elastoplasticity in one slide. I teach this course in a quarter. Uh, so I'll attempt to, to, again, squeeze it into you in one slide. But uh, really what you want to remember is this. You want a relationship between your stresses and your strains. Here it is. Okay? And to do that, you need this guy. This guy is really your bridge between deformations and stresses. The way you construct that is you use a framework called elastoplasticity that allows you to construct that entity. Just trust me that at the end of a, a quarter of elastoplasticity, you know how to construct this guy. This guy needs ingredients. Here are the ingredients. The first thing you do is you say, my deformations can be split into elastic and plastic. Remember, recoverable, non-recoverable. My elastic region. The, the, the region of the material that deforms elastically is bounded by some sort of a surface, F. You need to provide this for each material that you're modeling. Okay, so again, somebody gets into a lab and tells you what F looks like. 
the direction of my plastic strains follows a certain direction, again, provided by another surface, G. So someone needs to provide you with that ingredient, the direction of a plastic flow. And finally, the variables that control F and G, their size, their location in space, is governed by some parameter that we call hardening modulus. This guy depends on how much deformation the material has seen. All right, so every time you build a model for these materials, you need these three ingredients. Someone needs to provide them to you. You need mechanical properties to be able to, to link the three, okay? How much elasticity do you have available? How are plastic strains happening? And how are things evolving in time, okay? Now, if you have those available, the, the, the framework works beautifully. So the challenge for us here is going to be uh, how do we go from those very limited, very limited properties that we have in some of these materials to constructing models that need quite a bit of information and evolution, more, more than anything, ev evolution information. And, and how are we going to bridge that gap? And the state of the art right now in these models has been completely phenomenological. Someone goes into a lab, breaks a hundred of these samples, and somehow comes with curve fittings for F, G, and H. Okay, and that is a problem, and, and you will see that that we cannot, we cannot continue down that path if we're going to use that for, for let's say, uh, extraterrestrial exploration. We need something that is more physics-based rather than, okay, let's break 100 samples and hope for the best. Uh, but okay, having said that, let me show you, let's say, some of the things that you can do with, with, this, with these models, just, just for ha-has before we, we, we break. So here's an example of an elastoplastic model. I won't describe it in any detail. Just trust me that there is a yield surface. This blue stuff here is, again, is the boundary that tells the material when the elastic region stops. So I have an F. It's a function of my stress, and it's a function of some parameter that here we call pi i. That pi i is related to the relative density of the material. Uh, I have a plastic potential. Remember, this tells me the direction of my plastic flow. Again, function of a stress and some cosine of pi i, pi i hat. And I have a way of telling my model how things are evolving in time. And again, I'm a function of pressure through pi i and also a function of relative density. So I can, I can construct these models, and then I can compare them against um, experimental data. So this, this is uh, model validation for a drain triaxial compression test and also for a plane strain test. This was done, these experiments were done in 1964 by a gentleman no, known as Cornforth in uh, Imperial College. I, don't know, I do not know this, this man. I, I didn't pay him to perform these experiments. He did them by himself. And then we took this data to calibrate our model, say, in triaxial compression, and then don't touch anything and make a true prediction under plain strain. Okay, and, and I won't describe the data. The, the data speaks by itself. Okay, you have a dense, a dense uh, material and a loose material. And again, you see this striking difference between dense and loose configurations. Absolutely same material, same boundary conditions. They, de they behave very differently. However, you see the predictive power of the model. I mean, the model is onto something. It's not just doing whatever, right? It's, it, it has some predictive capability. But we will see that they start to break down under certain conditions. Undrained triaxial compression of loose sands. Uh, we, again, we borrow data from this, this case is uh, Hostum sand, very loose sand. Experiments done in 1997. We take their data to calibrate the blue curve and the black curve, and then we predict the red curve. 
Uh, and again, you see that the stress strain curves are pretty good. And the, uh, the, even in the stress uh, space, we do very well. Again, these are very controlled experiments. We know everything about, or almost anything about the sands. Things are very controlled. These are elemental tests. What's the particle size? Uh, good question. They're probably, I'm going to guess, a half a millimeter uh, main diameter. They're, 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 they're widely distributed, but the mean particle diameter is probably half a millimeter. It's, this one is, it has a fluid inside, and the valves are shut. So the fluid is trapped in the pores, and it cannot escape. So it's an undrained test. Saturated? Fully saturated. Fully saturated, completely undrained. Nothing can escape the pores. Right? And that changes everything. Uh, and finally, these are just what, what people call true triaxial <laughs> tests. These are more complex than just the, the, the examples from the triaxial cell that I showed you. And again, the point is to show that you can compare these models to experiments, and they do okay. okay? They, they, do, they do fairly well. Uh, and that's why they've been the bread and butter of soil mechanics for many decades. But they're phenomenological, right? And they, I, I, I will show you on Wednesday that they have plenty of Achilles heels, and they will just not work for, for our applications here. You can take it a step further, build uh, boundary value problems with finite elements. This is uh, a sample of sand that is under plain strain compression. Uh, the boundaries are, are, are sealed, so water cannot escape, and it's fully saturated. And we're going to compress it from the top. And it's just, it's, it's just for your entertainment. Uh, the, 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 the blue arrows here are fluids trying to escape certain zones of the, of the porous material. And there's a shear band that forms here. And you can see the water trying to very quickly escape that zone, because that's where you're shearing the material quite a bit. And pressures are building up. Here, uh, I won't describe the, the the color bar because it's not relevant. But you can you can see it as a proxy for for pressure. This is a very high pressure uh, region, and that's why you see the the, the water going up. Right. So there is significant failure there. Another larger field scale uh, simulation. This is like the Katrina levees. So there's your levee here. There's a water table there, and there's a load being sustained at the levee. And then you raise your water level just uh, like in a, in a hurricane condition. And for example, this levee was uh, very, loose, very loosely packed. And you can make, again, simulations of what happens to the levee and the interaction with water. And again, here the, red, the, 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 the white arrows are water uh, vector flows uh, pointing away from the region where, of course, you have high pressure relative to the rest of the regions where you have low pressure. Deviatoric strain here is where you're failing. The blue, the red stuff, right? So your your levee is going undergoing dramatic deformations. It's going to fail, as we saw it did in Katrina, and that is related to some measures of instability that that, that we can come up with. But the point is that these models can really link the mechanical behavior of the material, the boundary value problem, the solution of the of the of the governing equations, let's say, and they can really produce results that are useful to engineering. The million dollar question is. Is this 0.0025 real? Right? Is, it, is it what it should be? Should it be 10 times higher, 10 times smaller? What is it? And we cannot know the, the answer for sure if we don't know if the material behavior is really what, what it is supposed to be for this particular model. So uh, because this is a short course, I wanted to give you a couple of references that uh, when you have trouble falling asleep, uh, you can, uh, you can uh, go to. and. Uh, uh, Believe me, they work, um, especially 
This guy here, the blue cover, is an excellent textbook. It's sort of a classic, uh, but it has a lot of this plasticity. But what I really like about uh, David Muir Wood is that he really, everything theoretical that he says is drawn from an experimental observation or some sort of physical observation. And, and you'll see that that's rare in many of this, in this uh, modeling business. So, so I like this, this approach very much. You go from an observation, and then you try to rationalize it with some sort of a model. So I think it's kind of a primer to, to look at. But on Wednesday, we'll see that this is sort of like, let's say, this, the state of the practice, but it's not quite the state of the art. We'll see more of a state of the art on, on Wednesday and where the boundaries are. But with that, 45 minutes exactly, Michelle. How good is that? Absolutely. So thank you first. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.